Welcome to the Middle Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. What's going on, everybody? You got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here with the Middle Tech Podcast, and we just sat down with Masha Kusit of Drive Capital. Uh, So if you want to learn about how to build a startup ecosystem from scratch, this is an awesome episode to listen to. Um, So the founding partners of Drive picked their stuff up from Silicon Valley and moved to Ohio, and they took the experience that they learned from Sequoia, which is one of the arguably one of the best, if not the best VCs in the world. They took that experience with them from Silicon Valley to Ohio and established one of the nation's premier venture capital firms right in Ohio. Um, so it was a really awesome discussion. Uh, they, again, built an ecosystem from scratch. So when they got there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, infrastructure and they had to set all that up. So it was an awesome discussion. Yeah, it was a fun conversation because we got to discuss about how our, our values are aligned and how our missions are aligned. You know, we're both trying to build a startup ecosystem in our respective cities. We're just going about it in a little bit different of a way. So, you know, at Middle Tech, uh, we're big on producing media and content and conversation around startups and technology in this area. And, uh, the you know, at Drive Capital up in Columbus, they're big on investing capital, which is, you know, very, very needed uh, in the Midwest and in that region. So it was a good conversation about how uh, we're both trying to go about doing that. We also discussed about, you know, what actual concrete steps they took when building the ecosystem, because it wasn't just putting capital into the ecosystem. There's a lot of moving pieces that go into into building a thriving startup ecosystem. So we dove into that part of the conversation. Uh, some of Drive's most exciting portfolio companies. So I guarantee some of you guys are going to recognize some of these yeah. companies that they've invested right. in. So we, we got to talk about those. Root. Root is one that just had an exit. They IPO'd mm-hmm. uh, yep. you know, the insurance company for car insurance. There's one that um, Duolingo. That's one Very well known, for right? any of you guys that have tried learning another language. I know I've downloaded it before. So those are all companies that Drive Capital has in their, in their portfolio. Um, we also talked about uh, how Masha and her team think about due diligence. That was one of my favorite parts of the conversation, just because anytime we talk to venture capitalists, I'm always thinking, you know, what does it actually look like to go and evaluate a company and make that decision to invest? And she had some really good tips and advice on what they actually do when they go to, to look to make an investment in a company. And like Evan was talking about, we talk about how to actually build uh, a startup ecosystem from scratch. So we really enjoyed the conversation with Masha. Uh, we're looking forward to letting you guys listen to that. Before we get into that, just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. So first, we've got uh, the Land Betterment crew. Um, you know, the Land Betterment crew, they're doing some awesome stuff by providing sustainable business solutions uh, in place of these old abandoned strip mines and providing much needed jobs to those communities that lost those jobs from the mines when all those mines started shutting down. Uh, so you can learn more about them on episode 97, or you can visit their website, landbetterment.com. And if you're starting a company and want to talk to an attorney, uh, I suggest reaching out to Brandon Johnson. Uh, I've been working with him. He's a lot of fun. So if you need help with incorporation documents or shareholder agreements or things of that nature. And that kind of stuff can be scary as a founder and you want to make sure you do it right. And Johnson's, uh, Brandon Johnson's fun to work with. Um, and if you want to learn more, you can reach out 
by going to middletechpod.com slash johnsonlaw. All right, welcome back, guys. Uh, we are here in the Awesome Inc. studio. Uh, we are sitting down with Drive Capital and Masha Kusid, uh, who is up in Columbus, Ohio, and they, they are building uh, a really awesome venture capital firm up there uh, and, and pouring some funds into, into the Midwest, which we're really excited to see. Uh, so we're super excited to sit down with Masha here and uh, get some insights about what, what you guys are building up in Columbus. Uh, so Masha, welcome to Middle Tech. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and to to start here, let's just start with your background. Uh, I got to listen to a little bit of of your interview for the team that you did. I guess mm. a little a little around a year ago, and I was really intrigued by uh, your background and where you came from and everything. So let's just start kind of at the early days because I think that's pretty relevant to your to your entire story. Yeah, definitely. So I was actually born in Russia um, in 1989. So right around kind of the time things were falling apart from a political standpoint there, um, and that allowed my family to to leave as as refugees in 92 so shortly after everything fell apart um and we moved to the United States um you know my parents left with with no money and and really nothing but kind of the same immigrant story that every um no matter where anyone comes from is kind of the hope for a better life for your kids um and we moved actually straight to the Midwest so I, I lived in Indianapolis first for a couple of years and then we moved to Ohio from there and I spent most of my childhood in Cleveland um, I went to Ohio State. I never really expected to go there, but I did. Um, unlike most people from Ohio that kind of dream of going to Ohio State, it was definitely not necessarily on my radar. Um, I got a scholarship, you know, much like a good immigrant daughter. No student debt was really important to my family. So went there. And for that reason, <laughs> for that reason, pretty much alone. Um, and I, and I got a couple of degrees I got. So I got an uh, accounting degree from the business school. And then I, I did a, um, modern art history degree as well. So, so two very different degrees. Yeah, cool um, combo there. Yeah. Um, I don't really use either too much, I guess, accounting a little bit. Um, but I graduated in 2011 and when, when I was choosing my accounting degree, everyone in the business school was kind of dealing with the 2008 financial crisis and, and no one was really getting jobs, um, except the accountants. So everyone was like, you should just get an accounting degree because that's the one that at least is guaranteed to get you a job. But I did not even end up using that advice. Um, so yeah, that was kind of early days. I graduated from Ohio State. Um, I moved out to Seattle pretty much immediately thereafter and, and uh, did tech investment banking for a few years. Um, from that experience, I moved on to work at KKR, which is a, a global private equity firm. Um, hated it. So hopefully no one from KKR is listening, but absolutely hated it um, and left to travel for a while because I just got totally burnt out on on the culture there. And after traveling, came back to Seattle, joined a startup, um, and then got into venture from there. So Yeah, where, where'd you travel? I've been there. I've, I've gotten burnt out before and I went to Costa Rica by myself for a while and, and then came back. Where, where'd you go? Nice. Um, similar. So I went to Central and South America, started in Mexico City, went to Cuba, and then down did um, Patagonia, did kind of the, the W track there, um, and then just kind of made my way north. So Patagonia, Argentina, uh, um, Bolivia. I was like, I'm about to get crushed with geography knowledge. Um, <laughs> Peru, Colombia, Very Chile. Cool. I said Chile. Yeah. That's so awesome. a bunch that's of places. A, that sounds like I, awesome. would, I would love to do something like that soon. You, that's awesome. You yeah. mentioned uh, that you're not really using the two degree skill sets that you got. So as a partner at a venture capital firm, 
what would you say those skill sets are that you're that you're utilizing the most? Yeah, and maybe I'm being like overly harsh or overly something on myself. I'm probably using them in some capacity because when yeah. I think about my other partners here, like Nick got a philosophy degree. Um, you know, I think TJ got a history degree. Um, folks are pretty kind of diverse in in terms of what kind of degrees they got, but I think the skills that you're really using is using is logic from first principles, right? And that that probably comes with a philosophy degree or an art history degree or anything that really tells you or teaches you how to think about fundamentals um, and extrapolate from there rather than take kind of known assumptions and and scale down from there. So it's 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 really thinking from the grounds up, and and I think that's something you could learn in a university capacity but you could also learn it on your own as well or just be really disciplined yeah i'm a huge fan of first principles thinking i I try to apply it to any problems you know i'm solving and you know get down to the root and get rid of you know like you said the the past conceptions or what other people believe about the space and just start with the root um and so capital you know drive capital i believe you know kind of took first principles approaches when they arrived to ohio uh, I'd love to hear that story uh, as much as you know about it. So yeah, so essentially the founding story, it's an interesting one and it's one I tell a lot. So happy to share it here as well. Um, you know, it's it starts with Mark and Chris, quite frankly, and in their time at Sequoia. And Sequoia was investing behind these strategies globally where they had seen that AWS had essentially democratized access to infrastructure. Um, there were actually great engineers all over the world at this point, right? And they were being trained up quickly online. Um, and, and there was no reason to stay within this uh, parameter of Silicon Valley that used to be so important when we were doing silicon manufacturing back in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Um, and when you had to kind of walk down the street to get, you know, the, the IP around how to code your next piece of hardware. Um, and, and so Sequoia was investing behind these strategies by opening offices in places like China and in India. But if a company was in the domestic United States and it was outside of this 10 mile square, 10 mile square radius of their offices on Sand Hill Road, it was an immediate pass for the partnership. Um, they just truly, you know, I, I guess I, I wasn't there, so I can't speak to it, but, um, they just, they just kind of still had that internal bias around where great technology companies were going to be built in the U.S., um, and, and Chris and Mark kind of sat down and, and looked at the data and saw that, in fact, that the Midwest and, and, you know, just between the coast, I would say, broadly, had more Fortune 500 companies than within Silicon Valley. There were more uh, research uh, universities graduating, more uh, not just computer scientists, but also other people working in deep tech, right, um, or life sciences or things like that. And that uh, most of the population that was going to end up buying those products or technology or be the end, end, end customer of it were actually, you know, located between the coasts as well. So when they sat down and, and looked at all those numbers and, you know, the way Chris tells it, um, he 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 went into it, you know, not believing any of it could be true. And, and it slowly, one by one, you know, each fact he unearthed was like, this is going to be the next great place to build technology companies for all those reasons. And so took a took a you know obviously a, a massive risk by leaving Sequoia where you could comfortably work as a partner and continue to earn your carry and, and live a really nice lifestyle, um, and gave all that up to to move his family here and, and try to start something from the ground up here in Columbus and, and more broadly the Midwest ecosystem similar to I think what you guys are trying to do as well. Yeah, yeah. real quick, one of the things that I saw in my research was that one of the data points that you know, they saw was the amount of research to venture dollars. You know, there's a lot of major research universities in this region, Ohio State being one of them, University of Kentucky and many around here. Uh, and there's not enough venture capital flowing into some of the 
the commercialization efforts coming out of there. So was, that was one of the more interesting points I saw. Yeah, no, you know, you're spot on about that. And you think about like the quality of research universities that are in this pretty tight geographical area, like Carnegie Mellon, Ohio State, um, um, you know, even Penn State, University of Michigan. There's just like, to your point, these professors and, and deep thinkers come from all over the world to do their academic research in this part of the country. And then, yeah, then there's kind of this dead end with commercialization. So they saw that as a real opportunity. And, and that's been like a pattern that's repeated itself in history across multiple industries, right? Not just tech. Um, so they were doing some pattern matching as they'd been trained to do at Sequoia. And essentially just like, why don't we just use the same strategy that they're doing and internationally and, and just do it here? Yeah, I'm I'm curious to know. So, you know, the cultures in Silicon Valley versus somewhere like Columbus, Ohio, especially before we've kind of seen this, uh, you know, uprise in tech companies and startups coming in, into the Midwest, uh, because of that cultural difference, what was it like? What was the community like when, when they arrived and started the company? Was it pretty accepting? I'd love to hear a little bit about that as well. Yeah, I think some I think some fits and starts, right? Like, I'd actually be curious about, you know, um, Logan, you were saying that, you know, Evan came in or, or I, to, to come you to talk right. to you about the startup, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to come to talk to you about the startup. Um, like when I was at Ohio State, you know, venture capital was not on my radar. No one talked about it. No one, mm-hmm. there was no concept of working in venture and no one was really pushing you to work in tech. You know, at Ohio State, they really overemphasized going to work at like Nationwide or Deloitte, you know, or, or one of the big or one of the big consulting firms, because those were kind of the safety jobs for that could pay you forty, fifty thousand dollars a year when you were, you know, twenty two years old. So venture wasn't even part of the conversation. I don't know if was that similar to your experience. I mean, at least you had people coming in and talking to you about startups. We didn't even have that really. Yeah. I mean at UK, I was lucky to kind of this was all happened by chance. I wanted to get in the nice dorms and they had a program called a living learning program where they paired you with people in your dorms that were like-minded. And I chose an entrepreneurial studies one, something like that. So that started me down that path anyway. So I was very grateful that they had that option at the university that, and you, you learned all that sort of stuff along the way, but that was very much a small program. I think that I was one of like 30 kids that were actually in this program going through it at the time. So, I mean, they, they did have that, um, but you definitely had to seek that out yourself. It was not something that was presented to you uh, as mm-hmm. a as a very real and viable option. UK is, is doing a much better job today, but like I was a year ahead of Logan, and when I was there, I knew I loved entrepreneurship. I had started a company with some friends freshman year. And once I got that taste, there was nowhere else for me to get any kind of education within the college, so I had to start looking really heavily outside of the college, but it's really improving, uh, which is a really good sign, so you're starting to see the effects of that in the community here, um, and so we're yeah. really, really happy about that. And 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 I was just going to tie that back to your actual question around infrastructure. I think when when they first arrived here, when Chris and Mark first arrived here, there really wasn't that infrastructure, right? And building a venture capital firm or building startups is not just about capital, right? You need like the lawyers that understand the docs. You need the um, you need the recruiters to understand kind of what the talent profile and what the risk appetite for people that want to go work at these startups looks like. And, and we just didn't have any of that. So I think the first few years of getting drive off the ground, besides the incredible hurdle of fundraising and, and telling the story and, and laying out the data and asking other people to reason by first principles about why this is a great opportunity, that was all incredibly challenging. But like take on the fact that there was absolutely no ecosystem to speak of. And maybe that's overly harsh. That's just my you know view on it. Like I wouldn't want someone to come 
at me and say, no, all these things existed. You just didn't know about it. But And that could very well be true. Um, but it wasn't as in your face as like when you go to a party in San Francisco and you're 23 years old and all anyone is talking about <laughs> is the most recent app or, yeah. you know, what just got funded. It's just so in your face um, on the West Coast. At least it was, you yeah. know, when I was yeah. out there. And I see a lot still of is. I see a lot of similarities to what you're describing to what we saw here in, in Lexington and why Middle Tech was started in the first place. I mean, it's you're, you have to have that entire ecosystem to really support those companies that can lead to those exits ultimately, which is what kind of the, the end goal is. But like you said, you have to have those lawyers there. So we try to have those lawyers and those different perspectives. And you know, now we're trying to build this ecosystem where we're educating people who might not have known that they were interested in tech and startups. Because like you said, you need to have that workforce who has that kind of risk appetite. And, you know, you have to almost start at the base of, hey, this is an option for you to do it all. Like for me coming into college, I don't totally. think I would have ever been able to predict that I'm going to end up working at a startup, you know, a year out of college. I just didn't consider that an option. So I think we're both kind of very aligned in, in how we're trying to go about building that well, ecosystem. Middle Tech was a first principles approach business model because, you know, from my perspective of Lexington and Louisville and just Kentucky in general, uh, I looked at it and said, what's the problem here? Why is there not enough people talking about startups? Why are there not enough you know, sustainable programs? And where are the people that are talking about it? And if you take a first principles approach, it starts with just awareness. It, ta- it starts with people mm-hmm. talking about it. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. requires you know, more conversation, which a podcast is a great way to do it. And so you know, Middle Tech in a lot of ways was, you know, again, first principles. And so that's what we identified was in order to have a good, healthy startup ecosystem, people just have to have, be excited about it. They have to know about it and be aware of it. And then for the programs that begin to pop up and the lawyers that need to, you know, change their thinking, you know, now they have an avenue to go learn about that kind of stuff and even be aware. Uh, so, you know, middle tech is, is again, you know, kind of a first principle yeah. approach to it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think when, when Chris was, um, Drive has a sneaky way of getting people to move to Columbus and come, come work with them from without you really knowing it's happening. And when I was living in Chicago and working in venture and talking to Chris about how he thought about venture, like one of the things that really made me want to come work for him was this idea of creating these ecosystems and also of creating multi-generational wealth. Because in the Midwest, one thing that they have historically not done great is when there are exits, there's like three or four people from the company that get wealthy, right? It's not like it's not like the first 100, 200 employees like you see in San Francisco that then go and seed as angels, the next generation of entrepreneurs. Like I, if I were to say anything, like I think we've done a great job with the lawyers. I think we've done a great job educating the recruiters. I think like with the work that you guys are doing with Middle Tech is educating the broader population. One thing we haven't done as well is, is um, A, we need to have more exits, but B, we need to seed, have more angels that are, that are willing to t- take the risks on more early stage entrepreneurs um, and continue to build out the ecosystem from that standpoint. And I think like, you know, Drive can only do so much and can only fund so many companies. So we need more people mm-hmm. making those really, really early stage bets. That's like a kind of a, a culture of risk aversion as well in this area totally. of the country. Whereas in, you know, San Francisco, everyone's talking about it. It's, it's normal and it's celebrated if you've had a couple failures, whereas here it's exactly. a little bit It's a more badge of honor fun. there. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that that kind of leads on into this next segment that, we, that we'd love to get into here, which is just kind of the continued growth of Drive Capital. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what some of the more successful investments within your guys' portfolio have been. If you want to single a couple out, we've also written down a couple that we've, we've picked up on. Uh, but I'll let, you, I'll let you start with some of them that, uh, that you're particularly excited about. 
Yeah, maybe maybe um, I'll kind of speak to the most well-known one first, and then we can talk about some of the other ones. So I think Root Insurance is, is a great example of something that Drive has done really well, and it is pretty emblematic of how we think about investing in, in markets and the types of founders we get really excited about backing. Um, so Root Insurance started in this office that I'm you know, sitting in now with uh, an idea and in Chris's work in the insure tech market map and, and the fact that no one was underwriting on an individual basis and, and really using kind of the power of the iPhone and the telematics you could produce off the iPhone to underwrite driving behavior. Um, and so they saw that gap in the market because one thing we do at Drive is we do a lot of this kind of market map work where we're individual investors get really deep on themes and then they educate the rest of the partnership. So we're all aligned when we go and write those first checks. Um, so we, we incubated this idea with a couple of individuals who are super, super passionate about insurance, like young and hungry and just like loved insurance, which is a hard combination to find. Um, it's usually when you think of the insurance industry in the Midwest, it's a bunch of like old actuarials, right. That have been doing it the same way for 40 years and don't have any interest in changing it. Um, and this was not, you know, Alex and, and, um, Dan and, and the root team. And, um, this is a company that went public last year. So super excited about that. So have going, going from ideation in, in an office here in Columbus to a, a public company that will hopefully do some of the things we've been talking about in terms of early employee wealth generation and in success like that. And, and then, um, you know, build out this ecosystem of, of additional insured tech founders or, or whatever else people are passionate about coming out of root. Um, so that one, that's one we're super excited about, obviously. And still has a ton of room to grow because they're still in only in a few states. So Very cool. that's one. Yeah. Um, we can talk about others. Um, you know, one. Yeah, let's I talk about one that, more. Yes, yeah. Let's do okay. One. Is there one you guys want to talk about? Uh, or? I think the one that I recognize pretty clearly off here is Duolingo. That's one mm-hmm. that you know I've I've had experience trying to to learn another language yeah. on that app. What language did you try to learn on it? Uh, Spanish, Espanol. Uh, okay. You'll operate on both by Spaniel. Nice. Um, love it. Yeah, Duolingo, Duolingo's great. So Duolingo's a, based in Pittsburgh. It came out of Luis's work at Carnegie Mellon. So I don't know if you guys have gotten a chance to listen to the differential episode that we recorded with Luis, but it's fascinating, and I would, I would definitely recommend it. Um, so Luis uh, had already had a ton of success uh, coding projects and selling them for a lot of money when he started Duolingo. But – I think the so I think probably most of your listeners know what Duolingo is, right? It's a language learning app that that mm-hmm. kind of revolutionized mobile learning on the go. Yep. I think what's most interesting about Drive's relationship to Duolingo is it's a company we invested in when it had at a pretty high valuation, I would say. Not now, relatively speaking, but at the time it was like a little bit uncomfortable for folks because it had absolutely no money and no revenue. Um, it had this huge, highly engaged user base, but like it had not figured out monetization. Um, so one of the lessons that we've taken from Duolingo, A, we probably sh- we now we kind of kick ourselves in the butt for not having invested at earlier rounds um, and, you know, having more ownership of, of the business. But it's it's one we look to all the time when we look at consumer facing um, technologies because Drive is not like your classical B2B enterprise software investor only. Well, you know, we'll do direct to consumer, we'll do hardware, we'll do robotics. Like we, we really take a wide breadth of technologies. Whenever we look at consumer brands or products, we always think to do a lingo and think like if you can get a super highly engaged user base, like you can figure out monetization later. There will be ways to monetize that user base. So whereas I think a lot of other 
investors give early stage businesses, like you got to hit these revenue milestones. You got to have a million ARR within your first 12 months or you're never going to be able to raise funding. Drive just doesn't think that way. Like, you know, let's let's figure out how to get everyone on this app every day or using this website every day and make it part of their daily cadence. And then we'll figure out how to monetize. So I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from the Duolingo investment that we constantly refer back to with any kind of additional investment that we look at. Interesting. You mentioned that you guys invest in a wide breadth of technologies. Uh, what does what your geographic region look like? Do you have bar- Do you have borders or not? Um. So, I mean, we're we're certainly trying to optimize for non Silicon Valley deals. Having said that, when we get really really excited about a company that's based in the Bay Area and it's early enough to kind of influence where they want to build the business. We'll, we'll do our best to invest and then move them to the Midwest. So that's something that we've done recently with a company in the deep infrastructure space um, that had kind of all the usual characters in terms of really prestige brand name VCs circling it. Um, we had built a relationship with the CEO there. He had roots from Chicago and we, we you know, we, he felt, it felt, and we obviously believe that, you know, the Midwest is the best place to build technology businesses. So he's actually going to leave the Bay Area and build that business in Chicago. So I don't want to like blanket statement say that we never invest in Bay Area based business, but I would say our bread and butter is kind of Denver to Pittsburgh and then Toronto, Waterloo, Kitchener to Austin. Yeah. Got it. And has COVID affected Drive Capital or you're all's uh, operations at all as far as looking for companies? How, how has COVID affected what you all do? For sure. Um, so I would say in a normal year, like everyone's on planes all the time. A big part of our um, way we did business is try to meet people in person, try to get to know people in person, try to see how they operate in person, like not be shy about hopping on a plane. And I think one reason we chose Columbus back in the day was the airport's like 10 minutes from our office. You can get to most of the country within a two hour flight um, and then be home in time for dinner, essentially. So we had a lot of kind of like 6 a.m. flights uh, 6 p.m. flights home. That was kind of a regular part of every investor's week here. Uh, that obviously has completely changed, and we haven't been able to do that. Um, and we, one thing you know that someone pointed out to me recently. We so we just had our annual LP meeting, and we had a panel with some of the big name investors that are now investing in the Midwest, like Bond Capital and Founders Fund, um, and and uh, Lee Fixel with Addition. And this seems obvious to me now that they said it out loud, but everyone's noticed that there's more competition in venture capital recently. And certainly there's a lot of capital in in all markets trying to, you know, generate yield. So I was just thinking, oh, there's just more people raising more money. But he pointed out, or I think it was Keith from Founders Fund pointed out that founders can now do like, you know, five partner meetings on Monday morning versus needing to travel for Mm -hmm. five weeks in a row to necessarily do you know, five partner meetings. And that has created a, a level of competition that's been actually pretty, pretty obvious now looking back in the last year that it's actually probably been a better, like a, a, a seller's market for the founders, right? Because yeah. they just have more opportunity and, and more, they can get in front of more people via Zoom. Um, where as we used to kind of take it as an outsized advantage that we would be willing to get on planes um, all over the Midwest and, and go see founders. Now, you know, now that kind of competitive edge, I think, is a little bit blunted, to be honest. Makes makes so much sense. And now that you guys aren't flying around, you know, flying is, is expensive, right? And a lot of companies are now beginning to realize, like, you know, we've got these funds that were allocated towards travel. What, how can we use them? And a lot of companies, I was listening to a Saster podcast episode the other day about, you know, how the sales world is changing in COVID and 
what a lot of uh, you know leaders in the sales space are saying is now we're taking those expenses that might have been spent on travel and just putting it into customer success, giving it to our customers. Mm. What are you guys doing? You know, with the do you guys have a strategy yet, or have you guys begun to notice ways you're using money differently that you're not spending it on travel? Uh, what do you guys notice there? Anything? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if we've like reallocated resources in any significant way. Um, because, you know, because with the way venture capital firms are structured, like the management fees are, are pretty set, right? And yeah. you have this kind of defined um, headcount based on your management fees. You have these defined expenses. I think, yeah, probably we're definitely not spending money on travel this year. Um, I think we're, I think we will travel on an occasion when there's a ton of conviction and we can do it safely and things like that. So I think we just have been more thoughtful about kind of, whereas, you know, any investor, if they were interested in a company, you wouldn't need to like get a, you wouldn't need to get a second investor on board with you. You would just go see that company, right? Now, now I think we have to build conviction earlier in the process, um, which is maybe either slowed things down or sped things up, I guess, depending on how you look at it. But I haven't really noticed maybe a, a massive change in, in allocation of resources. Got it. Um, yep. We've made some hires in, in like markets like Toronto and Denver. So we have like now more boots on the ground talent people. So maybe that's one way we're seeing things evolve. Um, but that's also kind of the, the, part of the part of the broader strategic evolution of drive. But sure. I guess you're in a sales role. Have, has that happened for you in your role that you've seen any changes yeah, I'm I mean, kind of yeah, travel is travel's definitely slowed down, um, you know, and thanks to Zoom, you know, it's, it's less necessary to go meet every client. You know, when I was at uh, the first, you know, the startup that I mentioned earlier before we got on this call, Fuji, you know, I was I was doing this is crazy. This is actually a crazy story. I was living in Los Angeles and I would do a day trip to New York and for one meeting wow. and fly back to Los Angeles and nowadays, if you said that to somebody, I'm not sure what they would look at you and say. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, those clients are so big, it justified, you know, that spend. But, you know, that's starting to slow down, you know, for sure. Uh, thanks to Zoom. So do you think that, do you think that sticks around forever? Or do you think we go back to the day trips from New York to LA and vice versa? I think, like I mentioned, you know, if it's a client that warrants that kind of spend because uh, the spend that they do with you and they're that important of a strategic client or they're that important of a close, you know, you should make those investments on those personal relationships. And it's easier to make personal relationships over Zoom nowadays because it's become the norm. So I do think it's going to shift more towards virtual. But as far as building in-person real relationships with people, I don't think that'll ever go away, uh, especially in some of those larger, you know, with venture capital, you know, I don't, I think it's going to bounce back. You know, I think, you know, a lot of these, these major deals that are going to be done. You're going to want to meet in person and get to know the founders and get to know, you know, what it's like to be in the room with them. Same goes for the sales world. You know, if you're trying to close, you know, a major, major C-suite uh, deal uh, and you're working with somebody in the C-suite, you know, it's way more appropriate to go mention, uh, go, go meet them in person uh, because it's that important. So I think it just varies mm -hmm. based on what the context is around, around the deal. Yeah. I think if we zoom out five years from now or fast forward or whatnot, and like someone, someone historically maps back, like let's, let's just do public equity since that's an easier thing to track and you have more data. I think the companies that choose a remote forever policy are going to fall behind those that come back into the office and start, you know, working from work. And just the idea generation that happens, you know, in person is just, just like unequivocally better, right? Like it's, yeah. it's less formal, even though people are getting used to Zoom. Um, I think one reason it was important for us to work, you know, safely in the office together was 
that spontaneous kind of back and forth just wasn't happening for us as a partnership over Zoom. Yeah, that was the first thing that me and one of my coworkers that I'm really good friends with noticed when we were working remote is we just felt more drained working remote because the conversations, those spontaneous conversations we'd have in the office are kind of like what uplifts you. It energizes you. Yeah. And, you know, talking, talking about the ideas and getting excited about the ideas. So when you lose that, I think that's something that can't be understated. Like that's really, really hard to do remotely. And I think you're exactly right. (laughs) Companies that try to go full remote are going to fall behind. You're starting to see, you're starting to see startups pop up that are trying to replicate, you know, clubhouse for enterprise for, for yeah. spontaneous you know conversations and I think there's a play there but you can never replace just sitting next to somebody and bouncing ideas off them and getting their totally. expressions you know on what you're telling them uh, in person yeah and you look at like the companies that historically have been just excellent at pushing creativity forward like you know even Apple for example even they're kind of a monolith at this point like they never made any grant you know they were trying to get people back into their offices ASAP um, so we'll see what happens with folks like Twitter um, that have really yeah. embraced the well, fully remote I, I mean, if you're Apple and you've spent a few billion dollars on buildings, you know, you hope, you hope <laughs> people go back to them. That's so. true. Yeah, cool. So uh, a question that I'd like to get to here as well is, you know, what's it been like being a female in VC? We actually just had an organization uh, here in Lexington on for our last interview called Women Innovators, Founders and Leaders. And their their kind of purpose is to shed light on women who are, are taking on roles that you know, have primarily been male dominated and VC mm-hmm. is definitely one of those industries. It's been very male dominated and, you know, we're definitely happy to see that pendulum kind of swinging the other way, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So kind of talk, tell us about your experience being a female in VC. Yeah, I think for me, like, cause I started my career in investment banking and then I went to a private equity firm, like being um, in male dominated fields has always been just the norm. And I I would almost say that drives like the most diverse place I worked. And um, if I look around at, you know, who the next generation of general partners are going to be at Drive, like it's a pretty diverse group. And and I think it's a firm that truly, you know, uh, talks the talk and walks the walk, whatever the expression is. Um, Like they they really do put their money where their mouth is and in terms of trying to operate from a place of putting diversity first. Um, So it hasn't necessarily impacted my work as a VC within my partnership. I'm trying to think if kind of broadly it has. You know, I think, I don't know if this is female or or this is kind of more general. I I think there's always like a tiny bit of imposter syndrome, right, no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's perhaps a bit of that, but I'm not sure that since I've been at Drive, it's something that I've like thought about deeply. from a, from a personal standpoint. It's something that we talk about within our portfolio. Like how do we, when we're setting up our companies to go public, how do we make sure their board is set up for success from a diverse standpoint? How do we have more impact on what kind of hiring they do? We put out a diversity report that we just kind of quietly publish on our, on our website. And it's not something that we want to have a ton of fanfare around because frankly, there's more work we could be doing there. Um, but the places where we have the most impact as investors, both within Drive Capital and, and on the boards usually, is like the places that you'll see the most diversity um, broadly. I think I think there's like definitely a lot more work to be done around funding um, female founders and, and even like I'm, I'm probably guilty of that and could do more of that as well. But we also try to, again, like stick to first principles and invest in companies because they're great companies, not because they're, you know, female founded or, or diverse founded. Um, and same thing with, you know, who we hire internally. Um, so I, I, I probably don't have a good answer for you. It's a little squishy. 
but um, it's just been kind of, it was the norm earlier in my career. And, and so honestly drives a little bit refreshing in terms of that and, and the fact that people care about that and, and want, want that to evolve and change. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We, we enjoyed that conversation and it's, it was, you know, it was opening because, you know, the numbers in VC are just so skewed, you know, male and not towards minorities. And it's, it's good to see that more awareness is being brought, brought to that because it's important for diversity for sure. perspectives and, and everything. Uh, so a few questions here at the end that really don't fit into one of the previous sections that uh, that we've been covering. Uh, the first one is, what's a piece of due diligence that you think is uh, really important? Like there are several different ways that you can do due diligence on a company. What's your personal favorite and what's you think, what do you think is the most important? Yeah, I think we kind of live and die by customer references, right? Like we could have our own ideas on a market and the direction of the market and, and the why now and, and all the kind of the sizing of the, the market opportunity um, and, and the team. Like we could have our own opinions on all that. And what we'll often find is that we do have like these very strongly held opinions based on all this mountains of market map work you've done and, and research and, you know, academics you've spoken to. And then, like, you talk to customers or potential customers, and they're like, yeah, this is, like, okay. Like, it's a nice to have. It's not a need to have. It's not an acute pain point. And it completely shifts your perspective, right? Because there's there's a lot of, you know, working in theory as a venture capitalist or hypothesizing. And then there's, like, the practical timing of investing, right? You have this 10-year time horizon. And while this might be an excellent opportunity, you know, everything's going this way. Everything's going to get electrified. Everything's going to go into space. Like, everything's going to be, you know, X, Y, Z. The reality is that there's like not a market sucking motion happening on the customer side. Like it's just not going to work for your LPs. Um, so I would say like the customer references are usually the most informative piece of um, our diligence process. And also the part like I most look forward to reading in any memo that anybody writes. Like the way we set up our memos is you kind of go through everything and then you have the references at the end and hopefully they reinforce what you've laid out as the investor and, and your hypothesis in, in the company. Um, and oftentimes they're like saying the exact opposite. So then you get kind of like skewered <laughs> in your uh, Monday partner meeting. But like, you know, yes, you're telling us all this, but look at what the customer says. And it's saved us too from like, you know, squarely making bad investments or or um, it's it's reinforced, you know, maybe hunches that you had, but weren't totally, you know, had conviction on yet without the customer reference. So I, I'd say that's probably for me, the most important part of diligence and the most exciting part. That makes a ton of sense. And I like that because it keeps the, it keeps the business customer centric. Like that's why a business is created is to fill, fill a need, solve a problem. And I think that's, that seems like uh, that kind of first order of, of thinking to go back to that. Yeah. Like, this is where a business starts. It's the customer. So I, I really, I really think that's a smart, smart way to do due diligence. Yeah, um, I think that's a great point because it ties back to like why Drive exists, right? Because we thought technology businesses were going to be built next to their customer and in the the tech company that iterates on product close to their customer, nine times out of 10 is going to beat the tech company that's iterating, you know, from San Francisco. Um, that was like the first order principle that, you know, that was part of why Drive exists in the first place. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. Um, okay, so another question here that, uh, you know, we like having kind of an emphasis on technology uh, on this podcast. What is a technology that uh, you're seeing coming up that you're most excited about right now? Oh, yeah, that's an awesome question. So I I actually spend a lot of my time, I didn't tell you guys this, on kind of frontier technologies at Drive. Um, so within that, I would include anything quantum related. So quantum computer, information mm -hmm. systems or communications. 
Um, and then also space-based uh, infrastructure and everything that's hap- being launched into space right now and, and what the implications of that are. So like complete bias, but those are by far the two markets I'm most excited about. Now. And I think I think maybe less so in space, but I definitely think in quantum, the Midwest has like a, a real outsized chance at being kind of the leading geographical footprint for some of the um, work that needs to be done there, both from an academic standpoint in terms of like the great research coming out of places like University of Chicago and, and even Waterloo in Canada and the Perimeter Institute. But also like quantum at the end of the day is a materials problem. And the backbone of materials and in industry is the Midwest and manufacturing. So like you want to do it in the place that already has the infrastructure in place and, and is graduating the mechanical engineers and the chemical engineers and the control engineers because those are the people that like the quantum workforce is going to need. Um, so it's an opportunity I'm super excited about. It's one that we're actively thinking through at Drive how we're going to invest behind in terms of a strategy and um, both on the hardware and the software application side that's going to you know follow. Um, so yeah, like those are those are kind of frontier technologies that um, I'm super pumped about. I don't know if you guys have any interesting leads for me in, in Kentucky, yes, but I'm I was, all ears. Actually, <laughs> yeah, sure we were both just like five minutes ago to mention it. So. Shout, Shout out, out to, to Space, Space Tango. Tango. Yep. Uh, you definitely need to check out Space Tango. They're doing okay. uh, micro experiments that they send into space that are completely automated. So they're doing, you know, biology experiments. They're doing materials experience uh, experiments uh, using these micro uh, automated boxes, essentially, that they mm-hmm. send up into mm-hmm. uh, the International Space Station uh, and, and use zero gravity, super cool. microgravity, to see how that affects these different, you know, organisms or these different materials. Yeah, they're based on like to the Kentucky, which is just a crazy, could, crazy could, story. Could, could hit their office with a rock yeah. from here. It's like right down That's there. awesome. I'm yeah. definitely yeah, going to, maybe I'll hit you guys up for an intro. We will. But yeah, yeah, yeah I'd love to talk to them. Happy would be the first, yeah, yeah. wouldn't be the first intro we've given to them after shouting them out on this episode. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, next question here. What's, what's one portfolio company that you guys have that you want to bring awareness to because maybe it's early or just, just one of your favorites that you want to tell the audience about? Yeah, like um, I think Forge is a really cool one to talk about because it's so different than anything that's happening in, in kind of your classic VC um, world, especially in the Midwest. I mean, uh, the Midwest is not known for its, you know, life sciences uh, track record or, or you know, um, advantage or anything like that. That's all usually happens in places like Cambridge and Boston. Um, and my partner, Molly, who leads kind of our healthcare and life sciences work, she is really passionate about gene therapy, and she spent a year probably researching the sector and in trying to figure out where the bottlenecks for gene therapy was. And at the time she was doing this work, there was only two approved gene therapies in the world, right, to, to actually deploy in children because most gene therapies are done with young kids, so it's super dangerous. There's a lot of reasons why it's been slow to be a part of our kind of normal treatment cycles for some of these diseases that end lives at like the age of 18. Um, but this was work that Molly was really passionate about. And it turned out that one of those two that had been approved globally was actually here in our backyard at Nationwide Children's, which is a great hospital in the Columbus area. Um, so she kind of figured out that there's, there's something happening and and there's something that we could take advantage of in Columbus and figure out, and we don't have to be PhDs or, or experts in gene therapists to figure out what the bottleneck to, to bring this market to, um, to more people. Um, and so she essentially started a business from the ground up called Forge. Um, they are now, you know, she started about 12 months ago, found the founding team that were experts in gene therapy and figured out that the real bottleneck for everybody, and this was, this was something that came up in every conversation she had, was around manufacturing. 
So we started um, right outside Columbus, 10 minutes outside of downtown, a gene therapy manufacturing research. And, and they'll also have their own gene therapies that they'll also produce there. Um, facility. And, and this is a company that, you know, was like actually just an idea in Molly's head and is now going to have like one of the largest series B raises in Ohio. Um, you know, I don't know when this podcast will come out, but maybe before or after, um, it comes out. Um, and then it's just kind of like off to the races. Right. And, and the thing about, that's crazy about life sciences is how quickly things go public and, and kind of what the, the cycle is for these types of businesses. So a big fundraise early isn't totally out of the norm, but to think like that, it started from, just a passion area of Molly's to like where it is now. And, and that's a type of investing. And, and again, like first principle thinking that drive really encourages everyone, every partner to have. And, and, you know, that those are kind of our biggest outside successes too. Like I, I would point, put root in that category. Um, so yeah, I just think that's a really cool one just cause it's so different than, you know, what most, it's not like your B2B enterprise SaaS investment with 1 million in ARR 12 months after launch that you go invest 10, 10 million dollars in for 20% of the business you know what I mean it's like very much not a bread and butter investment and it's it was a huge risk on her part to like tag her reputation on that and it's it's only you know um done great things for her that's awesome that's very interesting that's one we'll definitely put on our radar and and uh pay attention to as they as they grow I hope they see a lot of success in that it's an awesome thing to be going after awesome problem to be solving um, but as we always do, as we as we end our conversation here, um, so just kind of a, a big, broad, uh, forward-looking question. Uh, you can take this wherever you'd like. Uh, where do you see the future, or what do you see the future of the Midwest looking like from the perspective of Drive Capital? Yeah, I think I think we'd love for a couple, and by a couple, I mean like a dozen uh, huge exits, um, both for our own sakes, but honestly for the broader ecosystem. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier earlier on when um, in this. Like, I would love to see kind of everything that Chris sold me on when when I came to work at Drive is that we were going to have this kind of humming community of um, investors and it's not going to just be drive like I would love to see 10 other venture capital firms in places like Lexington and Columbus and Indianapolis of you know large AUMs not you know micro funds and all that are great and angel investors but if we could get a lot of people really excited about the opportunity here and, and have it be this kind of um, well-known place to come and start your business and, you know, maybe even just like the obvious place to come start your business because there's so many engineers and there's so much funding and all that infrastructure that, you know, didn't exist 10 years ago exists now. Like that would absolutely be the dream for me. I don't know. I feel like you guys probably feel similar. Oh, yeah. Um, and I would love to like keep talent in the Midwest, right? Like I, I, I don't want to see people graduate from places like University of Kentucky or Ohio State and leave like I did. <laughs> like, let's just let's not repeat that and, and have people know that there's opportunities to be 22 and working at cool startups um, and have that have that be the way less risky choice than going to work at some of the bigger enterprises that have layoffs every few years. Like, I think that's been one thing that's been difficult to shift with people that I talked to in Columbus where they think like, you know, bank XYZ is the safer job option than coming to work for Olive or Root or Forge, right? Like these are venture-backed companies that, you know, we're going to do our best to not let fail. And then the other guys are like people that are very comfortable laying off a thousand people every couple of years. So so why wouldn't you go work at the venture-backed startup? Like that's actually the less risky move. Um, and that's a real cultural shift. I think that still is in the process of happening here. I don't know if you guys think the same or what your thoughts are. I'd be yeah. curious to hear. No, you are, you are speaking our language. That is the vision that we have for this area. That is, I think something that more people are starting to get on board with here, you know, especially the people that we get to interact with in our audience. 
it's so rewarding for us when we get somebody that's listened to one of our episodes come to us and say, man, I had no idea that such and such company was doing what they're doing in, in Kentucky or in Nashville or in Cincinnati, wherever it may be. And the more that we hear those things and try to grow this ecosystem, the closer we feel like we're kind of inching to that. So, you know, like I said, we resonate with pretty much everything you said there. If there's ever anything middle tech can do to help spread the word about what you guys are trying to do to the ecosystem up in Columbus, definitely do not hesitate to, to reach out and let us know. Evan, you have any? Yeah, and vice versa. Please send companies our way. We'd, we'd be happy Absolutely. to invest in Lexington. <laughs> Sweet. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely do that. Well, Masha, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your perspective with us, telling us a little bit about Drive Capital. Um, before we sign off here, just want to give you an opportunity to uh, tell our listeners where they can go and, and learn more about Drive Capital uh, or any sort of other plugs that you'd like to, to make before signing off here. Yeah, for sure. So Nils, our, our chief marketing partner, would be mad at me if I didn't plug drivecapital.com and, and all of our Twitter. I think it's at Drive Capital and LinkedIn. Nils puts out a ton of ton of great content, not just on Drive Capital related stuff, like a lot of you know VC fundamentals. And, and again, we're trying to do a lot of the same similar work as you guys in terms of just getting broader understanding of, of what VC and what startups are like. Um, so definitely check out our YouTube channel, our Twitter, our LinkedIn, and, and our website's kind of the obvious one. So would love, would love for that. And, and feel free to reach out to us or me directly. I'm just Masha at drivecapital.com with any kind of questions or companies. <laughs>